Good morning. So good to see everybody in here today. Before I get started, I want to give a big congratulations to Coach David Ives and the girls' Slocum softball team. David, stand up, and anybody else that was a part of the girls' softball team, stand up, stand up. I think there's a few of them in here. They won the state championship yesterday for the second year in a row, back-to-back. And uh, David's daughter, Jessie, is the shortstop on one of the best defensive teams I've ever seen in my life. And it's what a special thing for a father-daughter tandem to be able to win state. But to be able to do it back-to-back is is pretty neat. So uh, we celebrate with you guys. Um, That that is a neat deal. Um, One other thing I want to share with you. um, Danny was talking about taking a group going over to Pleasant Hills um, Children's Home. In the first service, uh, he told me I could share this with you. Our officer, who's working security this morning, came to me with a bulletin. And he said, this thing that y'all are doing here for Pleasant Hills, he said, that is so good. He said, because I'm a product of Pleasant Hills Children's Home. He said, <clears throat> he said, when I was two years old, I was sent there. And the church came to do what y'all are going to do. And an older couple, God just drew them to me there and raised me. And I got to, to know God and raised in a godly home ever since then. So he said, tell your people that's a good thing that they're doing there. So pray about going and taking that trip. Maybe God's got something life-changing in store for you there as well. All right, uh, Genesis chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn there. First book in the Bible, third chapter in the book. Going through our series in 1 Thessalonians last week, we looked at verse 13 of chapter 2 where Paul says, You receive the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And I talked about how God is so powerful that all he has to do is speak in order to cause miraculous things to happen. And when God speaks, things do happen. They can't not happen. Because he says in Isaiah 55 that the words which go forth from his mouth will not return to him empty without accomplishing what he desires. You know, when Jesus was here on earth, he demonstrated this particular aspect of God. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so when we look at the life of Jesus, we're learning everything about God. And in his life on earth, we see instances where, where Jesus demonstrated the power to make things happen just by speaking. Like the time when he and the disciples were in the boat being tossed about by the storm, and he stood up and just simply said, Be still. And the wind immediately obeyed. I love the story in Mark 11 where it says that Jesus was hungry. And so he walks up to a fig tree to see if there's any figs on it for him to eat. And he found out there wasn't. And he looked at it and he said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And they go on about their way, go into Jerusalem. The next morning they're walking by that same spot and look over and see that that tree is completely withered all the way down to the roots. And Peter notices this and he yells out, Rabbi, the tree you cursed has withered and Jesus was basically like yeah you're surprised at that 
Many times Jesus miraculously healed people just by speaking, be healed, and they were. He stood outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus who had been dead for four days and called out to him, Lazarus, come forth, and the dead man came walking out. You probably heard that it was a good thing that he called Lazarus out by name because they were in a graveyard, and if he would have just said, come forth, all those graves would have been emptied. That's how powerful he is just by speaking. So if you heard the message last week, what I hope you got from that isn't just that when God speaks, things happen, but what I hope you got the most was when I talked about specifically about how he speaks to us today. When we looked at Hebrews 1.1, which says that in these last days, the days that you and I are living in right now, he has spoken to us in his Son. The gospel is the word of God that unleashes miraculous power and transforms those who hear it. And so what we must do is continually look at, listen to, study the gospel, asking ourselves, what is God saying? What words are going forth from his mouth through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ? Because when we understand what those words are and truly believe them and receive them, incredible things happen to us. I told you we were going to pause our series in Thessalonians today and look at one specific thing that God is saying through Jesus I said it's probably the one thing that we tend to have the hardest time receiving. But if we do, it's the one thing that has the biggest effect on us more than anything else. It it changes us more than anything else. It changes the way we live, the way we think, the way we read the Bible. It changes everything. And we're going to look at it in a text way back near the beginning before we read it, let me just set it up and let you know what's going on here. God created man and woman and placed them in a garden where all of their needs were provided for. They lived in perfect relationship with the Father. They knew that His incredible love for them meant that they never had to live with any fear or worry or anxiety at all, and they didn't. It meant that they could trust Him. Because they knew that his love meant that they'd never go without, that he would always provide for them. His love meant that they never had to strive for position or applause or acceptance from anyone else. And knowing how strong God's love for them was even affected their relationship with one another. There was no competition between them. There was no fighting or blaming or nagging or bullying or anything like that. Their complete contentment in the love of the Father eliminated everything that would have caused any sort of conflict between them. But we know that the perfection didn't last forever. Satan comes to him and tells them the lie that God couldn't be trusted, that he was holding them back from something good. And they believed it began to question God's love for them, which led to them doing the one and only thing that God told them not to do. And when that happened, everything changed. Everything that they had with him and with one another completely fell apart. They lost that connection with God, which prevented them from being able to sense his love for them like they did 
before. And so the absence of his love led to them being feared, filled instead with fear, guilt, and shame. So they tried to hide from God, but there is no hiding from him. And they came to him and asked Adam, what have you done? That disconnect with God caused them to turn on one another and the blaming, the finger pointed, finger pointing started. Sin had now fractured their entire perfect world. And God begins to list all the consequences that would come as a result of that. And we're going to pick up what he says next in verse 22. So let's all stand together. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Lord, the only way we're going to be able to see what you, to be able to hear what you are saying to us through your word this morning. This is by the Holy Spirit opening our ears to do that. And so we're asking for that to happen. Lord, remove anything in our minds and our hearts that would prevent us from not only hearing but receiving what you have for us this morning. And Lord, let us experience the power that is generated just when you speak a word over us. Lord, let it happen according to your will and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, I notice some of you shuffling around. You were started at one place in the Bible before we went to Genesis because if you're following along in your bulletin there, those notes, you can just go ahead and just put a big X through all that and set it aside. I don't know how that got in there, but that is from a message from a few years ago. That is not what I'm talking about. The title of this message today is um, God's unfinished thought, and you'll find out what that means a little bit later. So anyway, those, don't try to follow along with those notes, or you will be very confused the whole time. Now, this text that we just read here, there is something so powerful here, something that God wants to reveal about himself to us this morning. In verse 22, God is talking to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That's what's meant when he says us. And he says, the man has become like us, knowing good and evil. Before sin fractured everything, Adam and Eve had only known nothing but the goodness of God. All they knew was good, but now they know, they know good and evil. And then pay attention again closely to what God said next there. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. There's something about that phrase that you have to understand. Otherwise, you're going to miss what it is that God's trying to reveal here. When he says they might live forever, what he's talking about is them living forever in that current state. And that is not a good thing that he's talking about because what is their current state? They are now in a fallen state. 
cut off from relationship with the Father, hardened to his love, full of sin, guilt, fear, and shame. If they take from the tree of life, he's saying they are going to live forever in that condition. Now pay close attention to the punctuation at the end of that verse. If you have any translation other than an NIV, you're going to see a hyphen, a dash there, not a period. This is how this sentence was structured in the original Hebrew that this was written in. God does not finish what he is saying here. Like I said, the title of this message is God's unfinished thought. This is the only place in all the Bible that we see this happen. God's thought is cut off mid-sentence. And what cuts it off? Verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. I'm going to ask you a question or really make a statement that's going to have a blank in it. And I want you to fill in the blank. Not out loud. Just think in your mind what words you would put in the blank to this statement. God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden because he was blank. He kicked them out of the garden because he was what? Now most people would probably say that God kicked them out because he was angry. Some might say it was because he was holy. His holiness doesn't allow anything sinful to be in his presence. But this isn't his presence they were being kicked out of. It was the garden. They were already kicked out of his presence the moment they sinned. We see that in the fear and the shame and the guilt that that resulted from that. I can tell you that there was a time in my life, in my relationship with God, based on things that I had heard growing up in church and based on my assumption of the way that God saw me. That I would have filled that blank in with angry, mad, disappointed. Because this is what I heard from so many preachers. And what I saw through my lens of rejection and religion. I mean, this whole scene here appears to be the picture of the ultimate rejection. They messed up. They failed. They were a disappointment. They deserved this. That is how most people are going to see this story because that is precisely the way an orphan would see it. An orphan mentality sees everything through the lens of rejection. If you are in Christ, you are no longer an orphan, but a favored son and daughter of the Father. But we still tend to carry around these orphan tendencies that we had for so long before we were adopted. Here's the right answer. God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden because he was loving. Because he was loving. And I know right now some of you are going, 
what? <laughs> it doesn't jive with some of the things that we have been taught or assumed or just watched though. This is good. And if, if, if loving is the first word that you thought of, then man, good for you. Because you have an understanding of God's love that a lot of people don't. But if you answered it with anything other than loving, that indicates that there's still some of those, those vestiges of that orphan way of thinking still there. You still haven't yet grasped God's incredible love for you. And I'm telling you, he wants to change that today. And some of you are thinking, how can this possibly be loving? Well, look at it again. Here's what was going on. God was going, they become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Wait, if they eat from the tree of life in this current fallen state, they're going to live forever. And then, boom, just immediately kicks them out. Verse 24 says that he drove the man out. The Hebrew word used in the original text translated to drove is the word garash, which means to drive out by force. It's the same word used later in the Old Testament talk, talking about the enemy being driven out of the land in battle. So God isn't just asking them to leave. He is forcefully removing them from there as fast as he can. Now, that would lend itself more to God was mad rather than God was loving. But think about this. There have been times when my kids, when they were real little, and I'm sure it happened with yours too, times where they would reach for a hot stove or begin to stick something in an electrical outlet or about to do something very dangerous that they didn't realize the danger in. How did you respond to that? What did you do? Well, because of the love you have for your child, you didn't just politely ask them not to do that. No, you garroshed them away from there as fast as you could. You forcefully removed them from something that was about to do them much harm. What happened here in this text is more like a father seeing his son playing on a railroad track, not, not realizing that a train is barreling down on him. And the father would look at that and go, oh no, if he doesn't move, that train is going, and then just as fast as he can go over there and tackle his son off of that track. This is what's happening here, a loving father forcefully removing those he loved dearly as fast as he could from a dangerous situation before they could take from that tree and live in that current state forever. Now here's another question I'll ask that'll also be a good indicator of how you view God. Was being removed from the paradise of the garden an act of punishment or an act of grace? Don't say it out loud. You'll probably get it wrong. <laughs> an act of punishment or an act of grace? Again, most people would say punishment. And if you'd asked me this a few years ago, I would have said, you're dang right, it was punishment. 
And I tell you, this is one of the things about God's Word that I just love because just when you think that you've got a grasp of something, just when you think that you've arrived at a certain place in your relationship with God, in this case, that you've got a hold of His love for you and you don't have any more of those orphan tendencies, you don't think like an orphan anymore, all of a sudden a text like this comes along and you can't see it as anything other than angry and punishment. It's the Holy Spirit using His Word to go, We're not done yet. There's still some things in there that I want to heal, that I want to set you free of, that I want to reveal to you about me. Why do I say it was an act of grace rather than punishment? Well, would you say that that father tackling his son off of the railroad track, that he was punishing him? No, he was saving him. He was doing the only thing that would save him God kicking him out of the garden was the only way to eventually save them it was the only way to make possible the reversal of their fallen state it had to happen in order for mankind to ever have the hope of being restored again may have noticed and in this whole text it's only referring to Adam behold the man has become like one of us now he might stretch out his hand the Lord sent him out from the garden he drove the man out Eve isn't mentioned here and that doesn't mean that she wasn't included in this she was kicked out right along with Adam too but there's a reason why it just refers to Adam and that's because Biblically, we'll see that Adam was the representative of all of mankind. Romans 5.28 is talking about this when it says, Through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. This representative of mankind had to be kicked out of the garden in order to make possible the reversal of that fallen state for those that he represented. Now watch this. Remember, everything in the Bible points to the gospel. If what you're reading in the Bible is not pointing you to Jesus, then you're not reading it right. This whole account here of being kicked out of the garden is a picture of the gospel. Romans 5.14 says that Adam is a type of him who was to come. Paul refers to Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15 as the last Adam. And so Adam Not only is he a representative of mankind, but he is also a foreshadow of Jesus. Adam was kicked out of the paradise of the garden so that those he represented could one day be restored. When Jesus took the curse of sin onto himself on that cross, for the first and only time in all of eternity, he was separated from the Father. Just like Adam and Eve were separated from the Father when they sinned Jesus was essentially kicked out of the paradise of the fellowship that he had enjoyed in the Trinity and he was all alone in the eyes of the Romans and the Jewish religious leaders who wanted him dead they saw Jesus's crucifixion as an act of the ultimate punishment being punished for his supposed blasphemy For those of us 
with eyes to see, we know that it was a total act of grace. He was rejected so that we could be accepted. He was cut off so that we could be restored. Adam was removed from the garden so that those he represented could one day be restored. Jesus was removed from the Father so that those he represented could be restored. Look at Romans 5, 18 and 19. It'll be up on the screen. It says, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, Adam's, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And how bad did God want to reverse that fallen state that they were now in? Last part of Genesis 3.24. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. An orphan reads that as God was so angry, he made sure that they never returned to paradise again. He put the angel there to make sure that they wouldn't be able to get out of the punishment that they deserved. No, the angel was put there to ensure that mankind would not have to live in that fallen state forever. To ensure that there would one day be an opportunity for them to be restored. The cherubim and the flaming sword were a sign of God's love, not his anger. You know, it's sad that even preachers, we aren't immune from thinking like an orphan, even though we're not. Many sermons have been and still are being preached from that perspective. I can look back on sermons and messages that I did years ago and go, man, I didn't quite get it. <laughs> Growing up, I heard many of those types of sermons. And the lesson in it, especially on this text, on this story here, the lesson there was usually something along the lines of, if you disobey God, you're going to suffer the consequences just like Adam and Eve did. God will reject you. He will kick you out of paradise. And don't get me wrong. Yes, there are consequences for sin. Adam and Eve definitely experienced those consequences the moment they were cut off from relationship with the Father. But that is not the weight of what God is saying here in this text. As I said, what we read here is a picture of the gospel. And in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. And if there is anything that he wants you to hear, believe, and receive, and what he is saying through him now, it is simply that you are loved. You are loved. Now, I know that we hear about the love of God quite a bit in church. I'll tell you what, as much as we do hear about it, you'd think that we'd have a pretty good grasp on it by now. But the truth is, we really don't. 
And part of that is simply because his love is so big, we'll never be able to fully grasp it in this lifetime. That's why he gives us eternity to be able to continue to discover just how big his love is. But one of the main reasons we still haven't grasped it very well is because we still hold on to that orphan mentality. You know, an orphan will always see bad things happening to them as a sign of God's punishment. Anything bad that happens to them, they're just assuming God's punishing them because there's something that they've done wrong, something they've done bad, because they're a horrible person. That's how an orphan thinks. But a son or a daughter will see it, trust in God that he is working all things, including that bad situation, out for their good and his glory, according to Romans 8, 28. They'll know that because he loves them, that he is for them, not against them. And that what looks a lot of the times bad from our perspective, usually it's actually God's grace and mercy at work. It's just grace and mercy at work. Orphans struggle a lot with fear because fear is just the result of a lack of trust. If you knew what God's love meant for you, you know that you could trust him. In anything, and fear just wouldn't exist. Some of you in here have a hard time receiving his love because you just don't see how God could love someone like you. You believe he's a loving God. I mean, that's not the question. You believe it, but more so for everybody else. And you even tell people, man, God loves you. But for you, it just hadn't yet sunk in. God couldn't love somebody like you, not after the things that you've done. But look at this story. Adam and Eve blatantly rebelled against God. Just sinned right to his face. And their sin fractured all of creation from then on. You might have broken some laws. You might have broken someone's trust. You may have even broken somebody's bones. But can you say that you ever broke God's creation? I don't think so. Adam and Eve did, and yet God still loved them so much. He made sure that they couldn't get back to cause us to live in that state forever. Truth is, it doesn't really matter what you did because you are just as guilty as Adam. His guilt of breaking God's creation, you got that. Because he is the representative of mankind. Everything he had, you got. But if you were in Christ, that changed. And everything Jesus has, has now been given to you. Including the life-changing love of the Father. God's love for you is not measured by what you do. 
or how good of a person you are. God's love for you is measured by one thing only, the cross of Jesus Christ. If you want to know if God really loves you, quit looking at you, quit looking at your past, and look at the cross. That's your answer. I talked last week about how God spoke, let there be light, and the universe just exploded into existence. To those he has set his affections on, he spoke alive to your dead spirit, and what was dead awoke to life. When he speaks over you the word loved and you receive it, changes just as dramatic take place. It changes everything. Fear disappears and is replaced by trust. Worry and anxiety vanish. Striving ceases. Guilt and shame just go away. And your relationship with, with one another, all your relationships with others, they take on a whole new dynamic as well. Jesus came to restore what was lost in the garden. His death and resurrection has made that possible. And if you truly believe that, and if you have received him, then he just wants you to listen. Listen to him speaking the miraculous words over you. You're loved. Just stop. You're loved. Now watch this. <clears throat> 